Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. The Syrian war has taken a terrible new twist, with weekend reports of a chemical attack by Syrian forces in a town east of Damascus. The world is waiting a US response. But does Bashar al-Assad's commanding position in the war, and the support he receives from Russia, effectively give him immunity? Ruan McCormick will talk through the issues. Syria's war is the first big conflict of the social media age, spawning a propaganda battle that has made it terribly difficult to separate fact from fiction. Reporter Sally Hayden will join us later to talk about individual citizens who have travelled to Syria on tour groups to try to find out the story for themselves. Finally, Dan McLaughlin joins us in Budapest to discuss Viktor Orban's landslide victory in the weekend's Hungarian election. Might we see a softer Orban? Not likely, says Dan. First to Syria, and a new horror emerged at the weekend with film footage of dead and choking civilians coming from Douma, a town in the rebel enclave near Damascus that has been the scene of fierce bombing in recent months. Some 60 people were reported killed in the incident. Aid groups and opposition figures on the ground say the people had suffered a chemical attack by Bashar al-Assad's forces, claims denied by Russia and Syria, who have called the images fabrication. Donald Trump has described the incident as an atrocity and threatened a swift response, while Russia has warned against any military move on the Syrian regime. At the UN Security Council yesterday evening, US Ambassador Nikki Haley had choice words not only for Assad, but for his allies. The Russian regime, whose hands are all covered in the blood of Syrian children, cannot be ashamed by pictures of its victims. We've tried that before. We must not overlook Russia and Iran's roles in enabling the Assad regime's murderous destruction. I'm joined in the studio by Ruan McCormick. Ruan, even in the context of this brutal and complex seven-year war, this appears to be a moment of incredibly high tension with a lot at stake. I think it is. I mean, it's an extremely serious and grave event. I mean, if, if the reports coming out of Duma are in any way accurate, and we assume they are, um, you know, the fact that uh, dozens of people have been killed in a chemical attack and many more hundreds uh, injured is, a, is a, in itself a really serious uh, event. I mean, certainly not the first time this has happened. Human Rights Watch has identified 85 uh, incidents involving chemical agents since the start of the war. The vast majority of them, it says, are perpetrated by the Assad regime. But it's very serious because we know that um, you know the Russians are very closely allied to the Syrians. Donald Trump in the US has, uh, on one previous occasion, responded militarily to a chemical attack uh, against uh, Syrian uh, civilians. Um, Barack Obama had famously laid this down as a red line and then also famously uh, didn't act when that line was crossed back in 2013 after a, a sarin attack that was blamed on the Assad regime. So it is really, really serious. And I suppose the question now is um, how does Donald Trump respond? Does he respond in similar fashion to uh, last year after the chemical attack on uh, Khan Sheikhoun, where he ordered the, um, the retaliation in the form of about 60 cruise missiles against a near deserted airfield, which was largely a symbolic action rather than um, a measure that was going to have any real effect on the war, the course of the war. But it's very serious because this is what we're talking about. And you're talking about a conflict where um, the Russians are involved on the ground. The Americans have 2,000 troops in Syria. You have proxies for various other countries, including Iran and Turkey on the ground. So anywhere where you get that sort of really volatile geopolitical um, mix, an incident like this is bound to be uh, very serious. 
As, as well as being unspeakably cruel, a, a chemical attack now would appear somewhat illogical um, given Assad's forces seem to be on the brink of taking full control of eastern Ghouta. But what might his motivation be for such an attack uh, given the condemnation it, it attracts? I heard contradictory stories about where the negotiations between Jaish al-Islam, which is the main jihadi um, opposition group in Douma, and the Russians who were acting as a sort of an intermediary to negotiate um, you know, the, the, the departure of the rebels from that area in, in recent weeks. I've read contradictory accounts of exactly where those negotiations were. Um, according to one account, uh, the opposition, the rebels, the jihadis, whatever you want to call them, they had agreed to um, to to leave the area, to be transported out of the area. Um, and if that's true, then it seems to make very little sense at all that Assad would then deploy chemical weapons uh, against Duma. Another account is that um, Assad and the Russians felt that Jaish al-Islam, their negotiators weren't being flexible enough, that they weren't um, they they weren't recognising what Assad and Russia saw as the reality on the ground, which is that they were being pinned back and they were going to have to they were going to have to give up. Um, and if that were the, were the case, then within Assad's you know distorted logic, you can see why he might be tempted to do this because we know that this is what he does. He in the past has used chemical weapons as a sort of a tactic to sap the opposition's morale, um, to give one last push to an attempt to. Um, to rid an opposition group from an area. Um, that was, I mean, the circumstances were not dissimilar in, in Khan Sheikhun, for example. And so if you believe that latter account, then, you know, you can see some sort of uh, method behind it. But clearly he's taking a big risk. You could also ask, why does he take the risk of bringing the U.S. back into the conflict. I mean, the U.S. has only acted militarily against Assad once, which was um, on Donald Trump's watch last year after Khan Sheikhoun. Um, why take the risk of um, drawing the U.S. back into the conflict just at the point where he's about to rout the opposition in the Damascus area? And that would be probably his biggest um, battlefield success uh, since um, taking most of Aleppo about two years ago. Um, you know, again, you could say, well, maybe he was thinking of what Donald Trump said only a couple of days earlier, which was that he wanted to get U.S. troops out of there as soon as possible. So perhaps he calculated, well, the U.S. has no intention of staying in Syria. They might respond, but they might respond in a, respond in a very limited way. And therefore, I have more room for maneuver here. As you pointed out, of course, um, Human Rights Watch identified dozens of such of attacks throughout the war. So I suppose it's fair to say that even though this has got a lot of attention because it's on film, there are many such incidents uh, recorded in in the past few years, and 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 in that context, perhaps it doesn't seem so far fetched. That's right. I mean, we have to be careful not to forget this is a taboo of modern warfare, but it has been breached, um, as you say, several dozen times, according to Human Rights Watch. Um, and in fact, um, other authorities say that since Khan Sheikhoun, since um, the US responded militarily to an attack that killed about 70 people last year, there have been five chemical attacks between then and now there have been five chemi chemical attacks. Um, but you can see why for the Americans, it's important to um, at least be considering a military response. We don't know yet whether they will or they won't. But this is really beyond the pale of modern warfare. I mean, you know, there are treaties, chemical weapons, treaties, chemical weapons, monitoring organizations that ensure that this sort of stuff doesn't happen. Um, you'll remember that when Obama didn't 
respond after the breaching of his so-called red line, one of the reasons he gave was that the Russians had committed to ensuring that Assad got rid of all the chemical weapons he had. So we know that that didn't work. We know because Khan Shaygun happened. We know because there have been a number of chemical attacks in the last uh, year. And if the reports coming out of Duma in the last couple of days are, are true, we know that it has been breached now. So you can see why the Americans need to be seen to be considering a, uh, some sort of a mil military response. The question now is, how do they respond? And in what way, if at all, does that change the reality on the ground? And that reality is that the war is very much going in. The civil war is very much, uh, the momentum is with Assad. And unless things were to take a very dramatic turn, possibly you know, heavy US involvement, for example, that reality is not going to change. Uh, it, it is reported today that Russia Russia will propose to the UN that uh, international inspectors visit the site in Duma. Um, obviously, the lack of verification of these events opens up uh, something of an information warfare uh, on social media in particular. Um, might inspections help such those kinds of inspections help diffuse that situation a little bit or, or maybe buy a bit of time? I think what matters is that there's a an independent investigation or inquiry into what happened. Um, what happened after Khan Shaykhun is that uh, an investigation was carried out by um, what was called the implementation group. It was an implementation investigative group which comprised UN inspectors and inspectors from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And that investigation in the case of Khan Shaykhun found that um, that it, Assad was responsible. Um, the Russians rejected that and used their Security Council veto to stop this um, mechanism working again. So they, they, they put a block on this method being used again. Um, what the Russians are proposing now, it's, we don't yet quite know, you know the detail on the Russian proposal, but as far as I can ascertain, what the Russians are proposing is that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons uh, would carry out this inquiry um, into Duma. The key difference there is that that organization can establish whether a chemical weapon was used, whether some sort of toxic gas was deployed, but it can't say that one side or the other is to blame. It can't It can't say Assad was responsible or not. And so you can see why that might be more attractive uh, to the Russians. So I think a great deal hinges on who carries out that investigation and what investigative powers that entity will have. Uh, given the deterioration in the relationship between the US and Russia, even even in the 12 months, I think, since since the uh, Khan Shakun response, um, it seems perhaps more important uh, than ever that that any any response to this is is an interna international one, beyond that sort of U.S. Russia binary, um, including Fran countries such as France and the U.K. Perhaps that's right. And France and the U.K. have taken a pretty strong position on this. Um, it was striking how I mean Donald Trump very rarely criticizes Russia or Vladimir Putin. It was striking that in his uh, tweets in recent days over over Duma, he was quite explicitly critical of uh, the Russian position. Um, I think the Russians would have been delighted to hear in the last week that Donald Trump was in a hurry to get the 2,000 US troops on the ground out of Syria. Um, but it has, what he's done and said in the last couple of days, has injected a, it's given a different edge to that relationship. I think, however, it's important not to lose sight of the, the big picture here, which is that the US, even though it still has troops on the ground, 
they're not fighting Assad. They're focused on helping the YPG, the Kurds in the north. They're focused on the fight against ISIS. And the big picture trend is that the US is gradually disengaging. And it's disengaging not only militarily, but diplomatically. It's not heavily involved in, um, you know, the discussions about where the where how post-war Syria is going to look. Really, the post-war dispensation is being hammered out by Russia, Iran and Turkey. And the US um, in particular and the West in general hasn't been playing uh, a very big role in that. Um, and so I, see, I think that's the big picture. And I think nothing we've seen in recent days is going to alter that all that significantly. Ruan McCormick, thanks for coming into studio. Syria's seven-year war has been notable not only for the terrible suffering of the Syrian people, but also the information warfare that has taken place, especially on social media. The conflict is seemingly always in the news, and yet media access to Syria has never been more limited. Frustrated by the difficulty of finding accurate reporting, and keen to see what is happening in Syria for themselves, individuals from around the world have signed up for tour groups and taken themselves to Syria. Sally Hayden, a regular contributor in the Irish Times, has just written about this phenomenon in a fascinating feature in Newsweek magazine, and she joins me now on the line. Hi, Sally. Hi, Dave. How, how did you uh, come across this phenomenon of tour groups? So I I was interested in going, and I was asking around about um, how I could visit, and someone put me in touch with a man called Andrew Ashdown, who organises group trips to go. Um, and so I just emailed him, and I said... I'm interested in going, here's who I am. And he said, okay, you can come with us, like as part of a group. And so that was the first time that I came across it, but I quickly became aware that this is happening a lot. Like there are groups um, of all different types from, you know, all across the world who are visiting. What is, I suppose, the, the motivation of these of, of the individuals? Is, is, it, is it really to try and get to the heart of the story a little bit? And, and, and are they are they disbelieving of what they're, they're reading? Yeah, so I mean, I think people have varying motivations. Um, but a lot of the people that I spoke to did just say that they just don't trust the media and that they wanted to see for themselves what was going on. You write about the case of a muscular 29-year-old American, uh, you call him living in Australia, Miguel Valenzuela. Yeah, so he was living in Australia and and had the same story as, as a lot of the other people I spoke to. He just didn't trust the media. And he said that, you know, in the past he wasn't that interested in traveling. He, um, he didn't really know that much about the Middle East. He told me he had never met a Muslim, but... In, I think, 2015, he decided to go to Iran to visit and he had a really great time and thought that actually, like, media coverage of the government was wrong. So then he started looking into Syria and, and what he told me was he went on TripAdvisor and started reading reviews of what people said about Syria and he was like, wow, this isn't the same as what they say in the media. So maybe everything that's in the media is wrong. So... Um, I kind of used him because I met him in person. Like I, I thought he was an interesting case study of someone who just didn't know anything about the situation beforehand, and and was quite quickly convinced, um, quite quickly convinced of the pro-Assad side. Yeah, I suppose it does certainly seem that there's at least gen- these people are certainly genuine. Anyway, that in their in their in their um, desire to find out more more about what's happening. Yeah, but I think the problem there is that if you don't trust if you don't trust journalists, and I guess it's a question about how we report to and how transparent we are about how we report, that if you don't 
see the processes and you don't understand the processes and the editorial decisions and the proof behind what is said in a lot of reports, then you think that it's as easy as just going and having a look and you can make up your own mind. And actually, as we've said in Syria, there are huge restrictions on what you can see and what you can't see. And obviously the people who are going to the government areas, they're not seeing the areas that are under siege, you know, and they're not seeing chemical weapons attacks or they're not seeing barrel bombs or, um, and they're not, they, they don't really hear people saying anything against the government because um, a lot of people, I think, are very afraid to say anything against the government. Sure. Now, you, you just obviously say that people's perceptions of Assad uh, change when they're, when they're there under those circumstances. You mentioned the case of Andrew Ashton, who you, who you mentioned earlier, one of the tour organisers. He met Assad. Yeah, yeah. And I actually met quite a few people who have met Assad. When I was there, he said that it was a great honour to meet him and didn't and said that he's been misrepresented. And, and I guess I can't speak for Andrew Ashton, but I think that a lot of people who go on these sorts of trips also get caught up with kind of meeting people who they see who are important and being surprised that they might be cordial face to face um, and then can't believe that they might be committing atrocities at the same time. Um, so it was very strange. It was strange and interesting to hear someone talk about what an honour it was um, to meet him. A number of the people that you mention who have visited um, that you outline have, have joined the propaganda war themselves afterwards. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about this is that it's it's been described, the Syrian war has been described as the first social media war. And so everybody who visits essentially like has the ability to post on social media about what they've seen or what they think or what they've witnessed. And that that kind of information or those postings are being seen by other people because people I met who've gone to Syria said they went after seeing a Facebook post or a Twitter post by somebody else who had been there and so the people who get in who can say I've actually been there are in a somewhat powerful position because they can shut down other people by saying you haven't been to Syria and I have and I've seen what it's like and you don't know but you know when you're when you're reading that you have to be aware that the government is controlling so carefully who's allowed in and the reason that a lot of people can't get in is because they're being stopped because they might be quite experienced and and be able to spot signs of things that are wrong in terms of your own access to information in in syria you have use a whatsapp group with a number of people over there to try to get some information from the ground how does that work yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm in a big WhatsApp group, um, which was full of people in Eastern Ghouta and in Duma as well, kind of less and less as, as they've become displaced or in some situations being killed. And that would be with a lot of journalists who are across Western countries as well. That's a place that they share information about kind of barrel bombs, about, uh, you know, the siege and about what's happening in the hospital and about um, the chemical attacks as well. So, yeah, I was saying I woke up the other morning with a lot of pictures of what had happened, um, really shocking images. And and I guess that's at the moment, that's the only way we can get that information. Sally Hayden, uh, thank you for joining us on the line. Thanks for having me. Turning to Hungary and Viktor Orban secured a crushing victory in last Sunday's election, earning a supermajority and a huge endorsement for his anti-immigrant policies. Orban's hostility towards liberal civil society groups poses a headache not only for NGOs and media groups in Hungary, but for the EU as a whole. 
So what can we expect from a newly emboldened Orban? Dan McLaughlin joins us in Budapest. Dan, you spoke to us on the, on the podcast last week about the opposition parties trying to belatedly get their act together uh, and coordinate. In the end, though, it's fair to say that Orban outperformed most expectations, especially with the high turnout. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the opposition did predict that if they got a high turnout, they would fare pretty well. And they did try, as you said, belatedly to to coordinate some of their activities across the country and run single uh, opposition candidates against um, candidates from Orbán's Fidesz party in, in several constituencies around the country. But uh, as it turned out, none of that did any good for the opposition. Orbán managed to mobilize his Fidesz voters much better than people expected. So... Uh, turnout got up to close to 70%, which is almost a record in Hungary. But still, Orban managed to, for the third time running, get a two-thirds majority in parliament and really left opposition parties in complete disarray. Uh, we've already seen in, in the couple of days since the election, the leader of the far-right Jobbik party, which came second in the election, he's resigned and says he's leaving politics completely. The um, leadership board of the main uh, centre-left party, has also resigned. So lots of questions for the opposition and um, Orban steams on. Yeah, I, I know there was there was some news earlier today about a couple of opposition media outlets closing down. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the main opposition newspaper that was left after business allies of Orban have, have really taken a, a dominant role in the media scene here in the last few years. Uh, the, the main national daily that was in opposition hands was called Modyar Nemzet. And we found out this morning that that is due to close in the next few days. That's a paper that's 80 years old, has a very, very long tradition as a, as a sort of centre-right paper here. And it was taken over a couple of years ago by a guy called Lajos Simicka. Now, he was a very close ally of Orbán's, but he fell out with Orbán a couple of years ago and moved into opposition. He's found things financially increasingly difficult going up against Orbán. He's finding it much harder to tap into uh, financial flows from state contracts and and advertising to his media operations. Um, that's much tougher to come by now under Fidesz. Now he's in, in it, now he's in opposition to Orban. So we've heard that the Modjan MZ newspaper is closing. Also, its sister radio station called Landsheed, that's also going to close. There will, there will only be one relatively small national newspaper not in the hands of Orban's allies after this. Uh, all the regional newspapers, which are pretty popular and and quite influential, and now in the hands of Orban's allies. So um, it's a pretty bleak picture on the media front for, for people going up against Orban as well. And is this, is this seen as coincidence, really, the, these outlets closing, or, or there's a couple of factors at play, is there? Um, well, the two that we've heard about closing today, um, I've spoken to a couple of analysts about it. They don't necessarily think it's direct pressure coming from the Orban government. It might just be the, the realization on the part of, uh, of Lajos Simicka, the owner, that it's going to be extremely expensive and extremely difficult financially for him to keep these, these outlets open um, under another four years of Orban, another four years of the Fidesz party with uh, financial flows to his his media, not just his media empire, but his business empire in general, becoming increasingly restricted and advertising revenue to this newspaper and this radio station um, dwindling, really, because advertisers, certainly 
state companies and the government, which is quite a big advertiser here, um, is not putting advertising money into uh, opposition media outlets. And also a lot of companies are reluctant to advertise with, with media outlets that are seen as being uh, disapproved of by the government. So it may be a financial decision, but it comes in this uh, in this environment in which it's the, the the space is closing down in all kinds of different ways for voices that that criticise Orbán and his government. A bleak picture indeed. You mentioned a couple of other resignations earlier, um, and I'm sure there were have have been many people in in society there, especially liberal society, waiting to see what would happen in the election before making a next move. Um, is there a sense that some some people in in certain spheres may decide to leave the country? There is a fear of a of a brain drain. I mean, lots of young people are already leaving. Opposition parties said that, whereas Orbán and Fidesz were focusing on migration and the supposed dangers of of migrants and refugees coming to Hungary, opposition parties are arguing that the real danger came from emigration, with lots of young, talented, dynamic young people leaving the country to find opportunities elsewhere. And we've heard Orban speaking today, really, for the first time at length since he claimed his third ter- third consecutive term. And he's made clear that there is going to be no backing down on his key issues. He said that immigration and sovereignty uh, have been shown to be the, the key issues. Hungarians believe these are the key issues. They've given him a strong mandate to be tough on these two issues. He said that a package of reforms cracking down on NGOs uh, will be pursued by the government once it re- once the new parliament reconvenes towards the end of this month. Um, and he also left open the question of what will happen with the Central European University. Central European Un- University was founded and is funded by George Soros, who Orban sees as his, uh, his number one enemy, really, for funding liberal NGOs in Hungary. This is seen as a key um, indicator, really, for the direction that Hungary is going to go. When we talk about um, Hungary being open or not to foreign influence and whether it's going to retain a, a leading role in the region, really, in terms of of uh, intellectual pursuits and academia, the future of Central European U- University is key. And yesterday we heard that the university has plans to open a, a satellite campus in Vienna. So there is a possibility that, that Central, Europea- sort of Central European University could leave, taking with it lots of academics, lots of young students, reducing hung- uh, Budapest's international profile, and really doing more damage to, an in- to the international reputation of Hungary at a time when it's getting criticism from 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 uh, from liberal commentators and liberal politicians uh, from all over the world. Now, Fidesz is a member of the European People's Party grouping, of course, along with centre-right parties such as Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats in Germany and Fine Gael here. Now that the election is over, might we see fresh efforts in the EPP to rein Orban in? Well, in the run-up to the election, we saw EPP leaders backing Orban, wishing him all the best, hoping that he would come out on top again in this election. The EPP leaders were very quick to congratulate him afterwards, um, and they really have not um, joined any serious criticism of any of the issues that the European Union is very concerned about here. That means the crackdown on on NGOs, it means the threat to Central European University, and also Hungary's refusal to take in a quota of refugees. Um, The European People's Party is accused of giving cover for Orban effectively as he moves to a more autocratic position. Again, speaking to analysts today, some of them have said CEU, the Central European University, remains a key question. They said that for the European People's Party, 
um, they, some of them at least, some senior members of the European People's Party did make that a red line for Orban in the past and say, you really cannot crack down so blatantly on, on academic freedom. Um, so that could be a red line. That could be something that could trigger tr uh, stronger criticism from the EPP, although there's absolutely no sign of it yet. Um, in terms of relations with the EU, as I said, uh, all the indications from Orban and other senior Fidesz members so far are that the strong lines and, and the strong confrontation that we've seen Orban engaged in with the European Union will continue. Orban did say today that he had invited Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, to come and visit in the next couple of weeks, and Juncker had agreed. So there will con be continued contacts, there will be continued talks, but absolutely no indication so far in this first few days of, of Orban's third consecutive term that there will be any softening of the line as regards relations with the EU. Damod Lachlan in, in Budapest, thanks for joining us. Thanks to today's contributors, Ruan McCormick, Sally Hayden and Damod Lachlan. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan. I'm David McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.